Businesses thrive by knowing customer insights because today's insights are tomorrow's facts. At iResearch, we live and breathe insights. And despite searching high and low, we were unable to find a customer insights podcast that answers one of the most important questions in business. Why do customers do what they do? So we launched one. Hi, I'm your host, Darshan Mehta. Our guest today is Gerard Ibera, and he is a consultant, an author, a speaker, and a serial entrepreneur. And he has a PhD in applied science, and he's going to tell us how he got from there to actually writing a book on how to make good decisions for better outcomes. He is the author of Good Decisions, Better Outcomes. Welcome, Gerard. How are you? Very good. Thank you for having me this morning. It's a pleasure to have you. So I really uh, like talking to you previously, and I like your journey. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about how you got from um, where you started out to where you are now, and maybe some of the uh, epiphanies or aha moments you had along the way. Because you start off as an engineer, but now you're in a, in a very different area of expertise, correct? Yes, yes, I am. But uh, I really appreciate uh, you having me this morning. I look forward to talking about things. And so your question about how I got here is, uh, it's, I guess uh, I've always been an entrepreneur uh, since I was a kid. And what I ended up doing was uh, to fast forward to when I graduated college, I graduated as an electrical engineer. And then after doing that, instead of going into the electrical engineering realm, I went into uh, logistics. So I worked for UPS for about 10, 11 years. And during that time, I've always had this itch to try to do something, something on the side, uh, do some work. And, you know, after uh, being there for so many years and I ended up trying to do something and it was a friend of mine and I, and it just uh, didn't go through. So we just went our separate ways and fast forward to 2007. So we stayed in contact with each other and I was working on my PhD. And then my friend calls me up from UPS. I mean, out of the blue, it's been years since I've heard from him. And he says, Hey, do you want to start a company? I'm like, what? <laughs> Who is this? You know? <laughs> I said, yeah, absolutely. And it, it was perfect timing because he called me right when I was graduating. It was, uh, it was the fall of 2007. I said, yeah, that sounds great. So what we ended up doing is we started in 2008 that's when we started a company and it was a log management company and we had it all set to go. We were, we already had a potential client and lo and behold, uh, the market fell and that potential client that we were going to have, uh, they ended up laying off 50% of their employees. So needless to say, uh, we couldn't get him or them as a client. So what ended up happening is uh, we were burning a lot of uh, runway there and eventually through networking, I met an individual who says, hey, I like what you're doing. Uh, you need to talk to this company and tell them that I sent you. And, and to make the long story short there, we ended up getting purchased for the, uh, for the for not so much for the clients. We didn't have any clients. We got purchased for the uh, product, the intelligence, the AI behind it. Mm-hmm. So that was our first experience of uh, getting into uh, software. And uh, since then, I've always had a bug. And what I ended up doing, fast forward to 2019, I was uh, the CEO of a company and we were purchased in, in 2018. 
And uh, with my new role, uh, I was just a sole person on an island. I didn't have any uh, people reporting to me. I didn't have anybody leading. And I only had one person I reported to. And it just uh, didn't really work out for me. So I went ahead and got back into the uh, entrepreneur world and uh, ended up leaving the company and writing a book. So, you know, it's that type of journey there. I mean, there was a whole lot in between. There was a couple of other SaaS companies that we tried doing and uh, didn't get to where we wanted to go either. So, but I'm giving it another try here. So really uh, excited about it. Never give up. I've always had that itch about uh, trying to do something better for the world. So that's where I'm at today. Nice. So I'm going to assume you're a deep thinker for you to get to where you are or where you started to actually writing about good decisions for better <laughs> outcomes. Uh, that required some, I think, some deep thinking and introspection and really trying to get into the inter- inner gritty of, uh, well, nitty gritty, I should say, of uh, decision making. So what, what got you on that path? Gosh, so that's my aha moment, I guess. If, if, if you take away anything from this uh, <laughs> this interview, this is the moment to take it away. So I learned this process in grad school on how to make, uh, it was risk analysis. It's making decisions that reduce the amount of risk you might have at the end. And when I uh, learned that, I said, gosh, everybody should be doing this. I don't know why we even have to think about decisions. This is a great process. Well, not so, but if you think about it, that's what business is all about, right? Yes. I mean, business is about basically minimizing risk, making decisions because you have lots of information out there. Oh, a yeah. A lot of noise, too. A lot of noise. But how do you basically, you know, get through and navigate through all of that so that you well, can make a decision that minimizes the risk? Ultimately, that's what we're trying to do. I'm yeah, to yeah, yeah. So that's, I think, I think that that's where, I mean, what I'm getting from you as well. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So, so what I ended up doing is um, after I learned that process and I did a little bit of consulting on the side and the use this process really worked out well, but when it was time for me to purchase my vehicle, I said, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm an engineer. I got this process. I've got, I'm going to put all these graphs, these charts, and I'm going to make the best decision possible. And so it was a Saturday afternoon. I remember it was during the winter and it was a great day. My wife and I went to go eat and then a couple of hours later, I'm driving a home, a new car. <laughs> so, <laughs> so all those graphs, all those things just didn't mean anything. I bought the vehicle because of the price, because of its looks, and because of the stereo system. That's it. And did you go and, uh, by yourself or did your wife join you? For no, that? my wife joined me. And of course, uh, you know, we got caught up with the emotions and I ended up <laughs> driving it home thinking I was in uh, some, I don't know, some race track. What is that? Uh, the, uh, the, uh, the Indy the grand, those races that they do within cities. I forget what it's called. The, oh, the grand prix. Yeah. There you go. There you go. So, uh, so I drove home like that. It's a stick shift. So, uh, after about three months, I'm like, okay, what do you mean? I have to get new tires. I've only had this vehicle three months. Well, you know, they're performance tires. So, uh, you have to get and during that time is when I was uh, uh, working on my PhD and the money was really uh, low. And uh, I said, well, let's just let me get some regular tires. And I said, you can't have regular tires. What do you mean? Well, uh, you have sports rims and those, you, the only tires that can fit there are those performance tires. Well, how much are those tires? Like what? He says, well, we could go ahead and get you rims and tires. And that would, you know, so you can get the other kind of tires. And uh, so I went and get uh, performance tires again and, Four months later, I had to get another new pair. 
So that was the uh, downward fall of why I made this decision. I don't know why I made this decision. And then lo and behold, uh, I had a little crack on the, uh, on the uh, headlight and I had to replace that. Well, that was about, uh, if I look in terms of percentages, that was about three or 4% of the total purchase of my vehicle. I said, how is this wow. possible? So long story short, I, you know, the car was good. Uh, you know, I, I ended up holding it for a long time, but there was just a whole lot of things. I didn't know the tires, the maintenance, uh, the repair parts. If something broke down, it was very expensive to repair. So, and then the insurance and it's just, you know, all those things I didn't consider. So in 2017, I started thinking about writing this book on how to make better decisions. And I, and I thought of, thought about this back in 2009. I mean, uh, not 2000, 1997. Mm -hmm. So 20 years later, I'm writing it. And I said, how is it that I know that we should be doing this, that I didn't do it. And when I started researching, I learned that it was my emotions. So my emotions got the best part of me. And I made my decision based on emotions, not on needs. And that's the aha moment. So when I wrote the book, I give the individual or the business owner permission to include your emotions, but not to let them take over. So that was my aha moment. Don't let your emotions get the best of you. <laughs> now, in this case, how much of uh, the decision making was also influenced by your wife and her emotions? Well, when I looked over, she was saying, yeah, this is a nice car. So I said, okay, check. <laughs> <laughs> so you're you know, okay, got yeah, it. Yeah, well, people think, you know, he must make some real tough decisions. Well, if it has something to involve with my wife, <laughs> yes, dear. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, all this other stuff and it just doesn't, it doesn't work. We're not getting it. Okay. charts and graphs. Yeah. Yeah. It ain't happening. Okay. <laughs> well, you know, I've read the statistic that 95% of the decisions we make are made by our subconscious. And that's where, you know, we as humans are able to process a tremendous amount of information from emotions to visual, to what we hear, to what we feel, all that stuff. So my question to you is, uh, I know, you know business decisions are often, uh, or good decisions are often made without uh, the over-influence of emotion, but I don't think you can ever get rid of the no. emotion, correct? No. And I think in some cases it actually is valuable as well. So how do you strike that balance? So in, in the uh, framework that I propose, I talk about your emotions and I also talk about don't let them take over. So the balance is that when you go through this process, saying that it, let's say that you have to buy some software, uh, you know, a CRM, the process says, hey, you know, what is really important for you? What is important for the company? And also those intangibles, you know, do you want to work with this company? Do you want to associate your company with this company? What a employee or the salesperson? So it takes all that onto consideration so that when you make a decision between two or three CRMs, you not only include all the items that you need for the company, but you also include those emotional or intangibles like, do I want to associate myself with this company? Do I like this salesperson? Do they actually have the best, uh, I guess, intentions for me? And in the end, when you make a decision, it takes all that in consideration. And uh, whether you like it or not, if you're thinking in terms of totality, it might say, yes, Gerard, I know you like this salesperson and I know you like to associate this company with that company you're looking at, but in terms of totality, what's best for the business and for your clients, you need to go with this, this uh, vendor over here. So it helps me go through that process. It helps business owners and 
and companies alike to make better decisions. It gets everybody on the same table because it is, that's another part of the process. You know, if you're going to buy a, a a CRM, you want to get your IT involved if it's for operations, but you also want to get finance involved because they have other specifics about that realm that you need to put into the decision-making process. So it brings everybody to the table as well. I'm sorry? You want their buy-in as well, right? I mean, You want, you want their buy-in. Buy and, and through this process, at least they see how their part of the decision-making process was considered in the overall decision-making process. So it makes it easier for buy-in from your IT, from finance, uh, from the other departments who, who really are not going to use the CRM as much as you are. So if I hear what you're saying correctly, I think what you're saying is the most important thing initially is to have your destination in mind. In other words, what is it you want to accomplish? What's your objective and where are you headed? Because then that's going to help you determine all the other factors. Is it going to get you to the destination you desire? Is that correct? Absolutely. So, you know, and I'm glad you brought that point up there because one of the things that I talk about or discuss in the book is it's not, I don't call it the destination, but I call it your true objective, your true goal. So in a very layman uh, way of saying things is if you're working downtown New York, for example, and you need a way to get around town, the first thing you might think about would be a vehicle. But when you go through this process, in the end, you might say, hey, a vehicle is more of what I want. What I really need right now is just to be able to take transit to get from point A to point B. So your destination, you think it might be a vehicle, but in actuality, it's not purchasing a vehicle and getting around town through the transit system. So yeah, you have to have that destination. You definitely have to have that. Otherwise, you're gonna be making a decision for something that doesn't make sense. I did, a, I did work for a client that has a vineyard and their goal was to become the best in the world, not in their state, not in their country, but the best in the world. Now, one might say, hey, that's a little bit uh, lofty, but you know, it didn't really matter. It really depended on what they wanted, right? And I think if they chose that destination to be the best in the world versus best in the state, there was a whole set of different decision processes and path that they went through. And I think the logic was, even if they didn't become the best in the world, and they became the best in the state or country, at least they know how much further they need to go to be the best in the world. But at least they set their target to a destination they desired and wanted. And it really shaped a lot of decisions they made along the way to get there. So I think what you're saying is very interesting. But, you know, I also think a lot of times when you're like the example you gave, you talk to a company, you meet the salesperson stuff. I often felt, you know, even if they, even if they don't give me the perfect right solution, this is a team I can work with. So how do you factor that? I mean, you know, you look at them and say, hey, they're not, what they're initially saying is not, may not get me to my destination, but I think they can because I just think they're smart and I like working with them versus this other team that said all the right things, but I just don't like working with them. Yeah, so, so you know, that's- in situations like that. <laughs> so it goes back to the model and it's, those are things that you put into the model. Say, okay, here's this salesperson. They really listen to me. They really uh, pay attention to what I'm saying. But this other team here really doesn't do that. And that's fine. But remember, you're looking at the totality of the system. You got to look at the price. You got to look at uh, your, what is the use of the CRM? What is, uh, how are your clients? Are your clients going to be logging into that CRM? That's why you got to take into totality. And when it comes down to that, you could use this as a negotiating uh, part, I guess. You could say, you know, I really like this company, but I don't like the salesperson. Can you get me someone else? Or 
hey, we really love this company. If you could just knock the price down by X amount, we have a deal. Because the framework that I go through gives you a score. And you could actually say, how can I get, this is the company I really want to go with. If they could only drop the price by X amount, my score will go up and it'll be the best decision for the company. So you can use the model for that as well. But going back to what you're saying is, it's all about totality. You know, you can make changes. I don't like this salesperson. Get me someone else or talk to the salesperson. You're very close to me going with you, but you've got to do A, B, and C. So um, when you encounter people and you talk about decision-making, where do you often find that most people make the common mistake? I know what I'm doing. It's not built here. No, no, no. It doesn't work with me. <laughs> so... It's called the uh, confirmation bias. It's a, uh, it's a decision trap where it comes down to the individual believes they know more than you do or they know enough that they don't need uh, your process. And uh, so that's really, uh, that's really the, uh, the first step in trying to get to, uh, people to understand. And it's nothing that it's against them. It's that they feel that if I'm in this position because I either I'm the CEO or I got to be the executive VP, that means somewhere along the line, I make the best decisions or I make the right decisions. So they feel that uh, the process that I'm talking about may not help them. But it actually does. Once I sit down with them and go through an example, it's kind of they see the aha moment themselves. And then we start uh, talking and engaging even further. So is this a matter of pride, ego? Is that what we're talking about here? Well, you said it, not me. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm just asking. <laughs> I'm saying that you said it. So yeah. So there is there is some pride and there is some ego involved with it. And we all have it. I mean, yeah. Yeah, we, we we do, and especially if you're a leader, you know, you have to be a little bit more uh, maybe a great or a type, uh, someone who really uh, says uh, that knows what they want. So, but yeah, so there's there's some pride and ego involved, uh, quite a bit of that. So I have to. Uh, I have to present it to them in such a way that it's best for the company. It's not that you don't know what you're doing. It's this process is going to get everybody in the same boat and make your life a lot easier. Can you give me an example of where you encountered someone like this and you really turned them around? And what was it that you said or did to help them turn around? So I had this one client uh, and they were an institution here in the uh, Dallas-Fort Worth area. And I by chance, of course, this happened by chance. I happened to meet someone that says, you know, I need you to put you in touch with our executive VP. So I met with the executive VP. I kind of went through the process saying, you know, how can you make better decisions? How can you get everybody on the same table? And after 30 minutes, he says, this is exactly what I need. And then he went to describe what he was facing. He says, every year we have to dish out about $300 million to three departments. And these three VPs of mine they are the sweetest, nicest people you would ever meet. But I tell you, if they, if they had a chance, they will slice my throat and try to get in my position. They'll slice each other's throats. So those, that's the type they had, the A personality. So he says, I want you to come back next week, and I want you to go through this process. So when I went back next week, you know, it's exactly like he described them. They're very nice people. They're all smiling. But you can tell by some of the eye contacts when you're talking, it's like, why am I here? Or, oh, the, we're not going to do this. We're going to get the money myself. So when I went through the process in the end, it was so much easier. So what usually takes maybe a month to dish out the $300 million and everybody fighting, 
we did it in an afternoon and everybody was in agreement. They said, yeah, this is best for the institution. It's not best for my department. So in the end, uh, we were able to do that. So what do you do when you encounter someone that says, you know, Jared, this all sounds great. Sounds a little time consuming. You know, I just like to go with my gut. (laughs) My gut gut has served me well so far. So how is your process going to help me? Well, you know, it's funny you say that because your gut is nothing but your mind thinking. You don't have you don't have gut feelings because, oh, you know, my gut tells me, no, throughout your entire life, you've learned things, you read things, you understood things. You can't tell a little uh, three-year-old, go with your gut, you know, like, well, they don't have enough experience in their life. You, so what I tell them is that go with your gut, but you're leaving out a whole lot of other processes or other people who have their guts. If you're going to make a decision on a CRM and you go with your gut, what about finance? You know, how much money is available? How much money can we really afford? What about IT? You know, what do they know about this? Because in the end, when you go through this process, there are things that you know, there are things that you know that you don't know, but the worst ones are there are things that you don't know that you don't know. And that's why bringing in IT, finance, other experts, so that you all collaborate and bring together the best decisions. So going with the gut, might uh, be a 50-50 or a 30-40 or whatever the case is. But in the end, having everybody involved will give you will reduce your risk of making a bad decision. And so when you get other people involved, what role do insights play in this? I mean, is that what you're seeking? Is you're, you're looking for insights from various people to help yeah. make a decision and yeah, because, a balance? Yeah, because you you if, if, I, if I'm in operations and I need a CRM to help me with uh, my... Uh, I guess my logistics, my inbound and outbound and processing, packing. I know my area of expertise, but there are things that I don't know that are in IT that are also in finance. You know, if this is going to cost us X amount, how does that uh, mesh up with our our long-term projections? I don't keep up with that. Or if, you know, the way the contract is stated, you know, you pay 50% up front and then 20% later and then 30% later, well, finance down this track many a time said, no, this is not how we do this. Let's do it this way. Uh, it's been our experience that we could pay 20% first and then use the product and then pay as we go. So those are things that uh, finance may know and have expertise in, but I don't. And the same thing with IT. You know, this is great, but they, they've had a lot of breaches here recently. We kept uh, We read an article and those are things I don't keep up with because it's not my realm. So they would help me in making a better decision as opposed to going with my gut. I could have chosen a company that was really great, but then in the end, they've had breaches in the last uh, two over the last seven years, and it uh, causes us big problems should there be a breach. So, yeah, you want to get everybody involved and not go with your gut. If everybody's gut's put together, then you can make a better decision. I think what you're saying is basically have these conversations so you can get other perspectives and viewpoints and also it also kind of contributes to your empathy to understand what's really going on with the key stakeholders. Yes. And so then I think you know the more informed information you get and these insights from the various players, then that just makes sense. You're going to end up with better information that's going to give you a, a better decision, which will ultimately lead to a better outcome. I mean, yes. that seems to make sense. It seems logical, but I think something we often lose track of, right? Because we have so many things going on and so much noise, but I think in its bare essence, what you're saying is have these conversations with key stakeholders, and along the way, you're gonna end up making more informed, better decisions 
uh, right. and help you in your business uh, strategy. Yes, and, and what you said there was uh, really uh, on point, better decisions, more informed decisions. You don't know if you're going to make the best decision, but through this process, you reduce the risk of making a bad decision. Because the only way you know is you made a decision, then go back in time and then go with the other decision and fast forward, then go back in time. But with this process, you reduce the risk of making a bad decision. And I'm wondering, do you think the times that we live in now, you know, post-COVID, what kind of impact is that going to make on this on your process as well as decision-making, do you think? Moving so the, the, the thing with this process that, that I have, this framework, is it really forces you to do your homework. So there's a lot of uh, information out there. Uh, there's misinformation. There's uh, information that you can't get. There's information that is correct. But through this process, it forces you to go and do your research so that when you make a decision about you and your family, you have all the information that's available to make that best decision. You don't want to make a decision based on emotions. So this process that I'm talking about, it looks at, the, again, the and for your family, it might be best that you get the shot, for example. But for another family, it's like, no, this is not the best thing for us. So this framework looks at what's best for you, for your company, for your business. And post-COVID, had we had this process, I guess, in, uh, I, I guess if countries would have used this process, they would have made a more informed decision because instead of going through and say, yeah, we got to do A, B, and C, they would have looked at the totality and say, you know, if we do this, here's what's going to happen to the these people. Here's what's going to happen to this part of the sector. So if they were to use this process, say, yeah, we took everything in consideration. This is still the best route then that would be fine. But a lot of times uh, we make decisions based on emotions and it just ends up going down the wrong path. Now, this might be a tough question to answer, but it may give me some guidance. You know, when you say remove emotion, we're not talking about going to zero, right? No, no, no. What, what, what percentage would you say is ideal to kind of have the balance between rational and emotional? So, there really isn't a, uh, a ideal thing. It comes down to what you are feel best with. So if it's for an individual who has to make a decision, let's say a house, when you go through this process, it allows you to say, here's how much is based on need. Here's how much based on wants, which is your emotions. And when you tally those up, you'll see that, okay, I'm purchasing this house. I have 74% emotion. 26% need, and I still want to go down this route. So at least it lets you know that you're making a decision based on emotions. On the flip side, if you're in business where it's about <clears throat> doing what's best for the clients and doing what's best for the stakeholders, and you see that you want to make a decision based on emotions, then you say, wait a minute, I can't let my emotions take over. Let me go back through this and find out where I'm at and still have emotions. So for a personal decision, Emotions, if it's something that you really love, like a car or a house, then you should be maybe over 50%. But if it's business related, you definitely want to be down in the 20 to 30% because you don't want to make a decision based on, oh, I really like the salesperson or I really like all the all the wells, uh, bells and whistles of the CRM. No, so. You know, I think I heard Jeff Bezos once said that he, he tries to put decisions in two categories. One, is this reversible? And two, if it's not. So in other words, if the if the choice or the decision you make is reversible, 
then go for it. You know, don't overthink it, don't analyze it. But if it's not reversible, in other words, once you go through the door, there's no coming back. You may want to sleep on it and think about it before you make that decision. What do you think of that? Well, uh, it's part of the what I call the P2 mode, which is uh, the trademark of my book, which is process, parts, maintenance costs, operational costs, disposal, and emotions. And disposal is the thing. It's called your exit strategy. So when I go through this process, I always have the individual or the company say, what's your exit strategy? What are you going to do once you purchase this or you make this decision? What do you do in the end? And is there a way out of here? So it's very important. So that's one of the things that I leave uh, when someone asks me, you know, what's that one thing that you want to leave for the companies? It's make sure you have an exit strategy. So it's like what Bezos said, you know, what happens? Can I get out of it? So you got to make sure you have an exit strategy. And when I was the, uh, when I was uh, running the company, I always did the contracts and I always had an exit strategy, which was no matter what, either party can get out of this, uh, this uh, contract with a 30 day notice period. So that was my exit strategy. Do you also recommend having an exit strategy if you make the wrong decision? Yeah, because you, yeah, because when you actually go through the process and you say, what is my exit strategy? Part of that exit strategy should be, if this is not what was right, what do I do next? Mm -hmm. So yeah, your exit strategy has to include everything. It's the life cycle of the product or it's the life cycle of the decision. And if your decision says, hey, this was not the best one, you should have something in place that says, what do I do now if this was the wrong decision? Now, we're talking a lot in the business context, but how much of this is also applicable in one's personal life? So very, very applicable. Uh, if you're going to make that decision, whether you take this job in Asia or stay in the States, you go through this framework and it forces you to think about my family, uh, my friends. Uh, it forces you to think about your children, forces you to think about how long are you to be there. So it's very applicable to what you're doing and it allows you to also keep your emotions in check. If I go to Asia, it's going to be a great experience for my family, for my kids. But if I stay here, I still have my grandparents that they can visit quite often. And it just puts it all in perspective. So it's uh, very applicable. I would think as you start this process of uh, all these different factors and, and uh, criteria, it automatically starts, uh, I think, uh, tamping down the emotion a little bit anyways, right? Yes, you yes. You start to think more rationally. You start to think of all these different factors. And that kind of takes the emotion out of it. Not completely, but at least it brings it down to a level that might be, as you said, more comfortable with naturally. It's just, it seems like that's just kind of inherent in the process if people just take the time to do that. Yes. It's, it's critical thinking is what it comes down to. Uh, so the P2 mode that I, that I tout is that cookie cutter to make you force you to think about all the, uh, all the obstacles or all the things that could happen. It forces you to do that. Mm -hmm. So that's why I have it in there because the thinking totalities, people don't like to think, I don't like to think. So, you know, I don't even know why I wrote about a book about thinking, <laughs> but, uh, going through this cookie cutter forces you to do those thinking, forces you to think about your emotions, forces you to think about your exit strategy, forces you to think about your cost. So if you go through that process in the end, you'll have a well-rounded decision that includes things that you might not have thought of had you not gone through this process. 
and I think part of that process of thinking is also challenging your own thinking in your head, right? Like you might say, oh, I really want to go left. But then you say, wait a minute, if I go left, this is going to happen, right? I mean, that's <laughs> yeah. part of the process as well, isn't it? Yeah. So there's something called a cognitive control and value-based decision-making. And the cognitive control is that part of your brain that says, stay focused, focus, focus. It's the angel side of your, you know, your shoulder. But the value-based decision is, no, this is great. Go this way, this way, this way. It's the devil side of your shoulders. So these two things are always fighting each other since, since the beginning of man. And it's in part of the frontal temporal part of your brain up here. And it's always been fighting. So you have to really stay in that critical thinking mode. Say, hey, I got to stay focused. I got to stay in control. And it's very important. So... Daniel Kahneman, uh, he's a Nobel Prize winner in uh, economics, and he wrote a book called uh, Thinking Fast and Slow, and he calls something called Systems 2 Thinking, which is stay, it's critical thinking. And that's what you've got to do when you have to make a tough decision, a life-changing decision. you got to stay, you got to stay focused. It's interesting. I've often heard that people are often their worst enemies. Um, you know, that they make a bad decision. If they were just to take, you know, I mean, I think I'm part of that. If they were just to take, uh, you know, one or two minutes or just a, a little more time to think through, they could probably save more than half the uh, hassles they create for themselves. Yes, especially in that email hit sad. <laughs> yeah, make sure it's not going out to everybody, right? Yes. Yeah. In today's age, day and age. And oftentimes, you know, the email that you're reacting to, you might have just misconstrued, right? Because people don't take the time to really articulate all that's in. They just want to get it out quickly. Yes. And sometimes that it, it might, might be a little bit too short or too curt and not as warm and fuzzy. And then you react to it. But yeah, I think it's better sometimes just, you know, take take some time think about it, then react to it later. But for the most part in business, if you can minimize the emotions, it probably will serve you serve you well. Now, I think it's a little bit tougher in a personal context, but uh, it's, it's, it's just a matter of striking that, that balance. Uh, you know, it's, 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 it's also, it's also difficult in the business world because you're thinking, okay, let's, uh, let's stay focused. Uh, you know, what's the bottom line? What's the best for the client, but within business, there's emotions. Uh, I don't want to help this person in IT because of what they did to me last time. That grudge is there in the back. Oh, finance didn't approve of this, doggone it. So I'm going to make sure they don't get what they want. So yeah, emotions also comes into play at the workforce. So sure, sure. Yeah. So what's uh, next on your frontier for learning or exploring about decision making? It's a good question. For, for me, is to continue going down the route where I help companies and individuals make better decisions. Uh, one of my whys for the book, one of the main whys for my book is I want individuals to think critically. I don't want them to think that the commercial is telling me that if I buy these tennis shoes, I'm going to be able to jump halfway through the court and be able to dunk the ball. Or if I purchase this vehicle, I'm going to be able to go to these far exotic places and do things I could never do before. I want people to think critically and I want them to think for them. So that was the big why for my book. And a lot of those decisions we make are based on emotions. And if you don't keep them in check, then you may not be making the best decision. Can you actually teach people to think critically or do you have to have teach them through different exercises of experiencing it? So the reason I put the P2 mode in there is that having to think critically and 
you know, I talk to them when I, when I go to the work, when I train companies, when I train individuals, I say, look, if the best time for you to do thinking according to science is the start of your day, whether that's in the morning or in the afternoon or evening. It's not for everybody, but a very, very high, high number of people think best that. So when you go through this process, when you have to make some really tough decisions, now I'm not talking about, you know, do I get this beer? Do I get this pizza? Or, you know, do I go to this restaurant? I'm talking about things that are really are going to be life changing. Mm-hmm. Then you want to stay critical in the critical thinking and use the P2 mode. If you find yourself going uh, saying, you know, okay, I'm doing the P2 mode and then, oh, the game is on. Okay, let me go back. Oh, look at that touchdown. Then I tell them, you know, just put it up, come back later when it's the best time for you to do it. So critical thinking is hard to do and people don't like doing it. Yeah, I think part of that has to, uh, it does come more with experience and actually going through exercises that they can actually look at, evaluate. You want to think, make a mistake. That's not the point. I think they can learn either way, whether they do it right or they do it incorrectly. They can learn from the feedback once someone attempts to do that. Yes, yes. So if there was anyone in the world of decision-making insights that you would love to have lunch with, who would it be and why? We would be Dr. Daniel Kahneman. Uh, When I started doing research for my book, I picked up his book and I was just really amazed by the things that he had to say. Uh, And a lot of my book uh, actually uses systems one and systems two thinking. That's what he calls it. So I like to get into the inside of how he got to where he was at. Uh, very fascinating uh, career, very fascinating some of the things he's done. Uh, get into the insights. He talks about this one thing where they were hired to do some consulting for a firm that does uh, trading. Uh-huh. And the owner asked him, you know, how is it that these people did so well? Can you go through there and find out? And in the end, when they had dinner, the owner asked him, so how did, how did this happen? He says, uh, do you really want to know? Yeah, luck. And he says, yeah, I don't think so. But anyway, and he was telling, and in his book, he says, which I found really funny, the next day he presented to the entire firm. And when he finished, people were just looking at him and then they said, okay, next, let's go ahead and give out the awards. And everybody was high five and clapping. So everything he said didn't matter to him because he says it's all based on luck. It was just, there's no real rhyme and reason how this ended up. And I'd like to hear that story from him, how he got there and, you know, what, what were some of the insights? And did the, the CEO give him a really dirty look when he says it was all, it was all just luck. So how much of a role does luck play? I mean, in, 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 in- uh, luck does play, a, you know, he talks about uh, Google in there. Uh, he gives an example where they were going to sell the company for a million dollars but the things fell through and now look where Google's at. So he says that was sheer luck. I mean, yeah, you have to have a product, you have to have things, but there's also being at the right place at the right time, making the decision that was best for you, that even though you didn't think it was the best decision. So in this case for Google, it was not selling. For us, when I told you we had our first company sold, it was luck. I actually went to a, a performance where I said, okay, you know, I, I should be out there networking. And I met with this individual just by sheer luck. And he's the one who says, I like what you're doing. Here's my card. Call the CEO. Tell them I sent you. Tell them that you need to get in there and have them buy you. So uh, they, we, we were lucky there. 
Yeah, I think that there's no doubt luck does play a factor, but you also have to be prepared to take advantage yes. of that luck in that situation. Yes. So it's, it's, yes. it's not yes. just one or the other. It's, it's a combination of a lot of things. Yeah. And then, of course, there's a serendipity, right? And that's a, another form of luck. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm sure yes. we can do a whole new, a whole other episode on serendipity. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, listen, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Uh, this is very interesting. And I appreciate your insights and the, uh, you know, guiding us through good decision-making for better outcomes. I appreciate that. And uh, thank you again very much. Thank you very much for having me on. Getting to AHA was brought to you by iResearch. To find out more about us, head to iResearch.com. And make sure to search for Getting to AHA in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are found. And don't forget to click follow to ensure you don't miss any future episodes. Thank you for listening.